The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. Unfortunately, we had a technical hitch with the recording of the service yesterday. Um, and so this message is not recorded live. My apologies if it's not uh, quite the usual. But for five months now, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. This morning we come to chapter 11. I love the story. There are so many insights. Uh, it presents so many questions for me. Uh, has so much to say about God's will and about human nature and about human potential. One of the things I find fascinating about this story is that while it's located and it, it plays out in one place, in one time, one point in human history, uh, the story is so often repeated even today. I've often been told that denominations are not part of God's plan, and I want to say that actually I suspect they are. Uh, let me explain. One thing we've noted repeatedly as we've gone through the book of Genesis is that the author generally understood to be Moses. While he is unrolling a narrative, the narrative is not simply chronological. For example, in Genesis 1, we have the story of the creation uh, right through from uh, in the beginning God said and right through to the creation of man and the creation of the Sabbath. And then Genesis 2 the author steps back and unpacks Genesis 1, 26 and 27 in greater detail, the, the creation of man. And that's unpacked in much greater detail in Genesis 2. Then follows in Genesis 3, we had the uh, the fall. Um, Genesis 4, we had the story of Cain and Abel. And then as we stepped into Genesis 5, we read this is the written account of Adam's line. Uh, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. You, you see in that the, the echo of Genesis 1. Um, and then he, made, he, he named them mankind when they were created. And then we're told in Genesis uh, 1, again, back in Genesis 5, uh, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And then the passage continues to talk about Seth and his descendants, almost as if Cain and Abel were never part of the story. And the same happens here again in, Genesis, in uh, chapter 11. If there's one thing that chapter 11 is known for, it, it's the beginning or the creation of different languages. But the actual appearance of different languages is found in uh, chapter 10. Um, in, in Genesis 10 verse 5, we read, From these, the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. And in verse 20, These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And then in verse 31, These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And so we've been unpacking there the, the, the different languages as the nation spread out. Um, and, and the chapter concludes, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. 
Uh, from these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And it's like, yay, finally Noah's sons and their descendants were obedient. They were being commanded right back in creation in Genesis 1. Uh, God created Adam and Eve and told them to go and multiply and fill the earth. Um, and, and so finally, uh, Genesis 10 has this picture of Noah's sons and their descendants obediently going out and multiplying and spreading it over the whole earth. But then the author says, well, actually, that's not quite the way it happened. And, and in chapter 11, it says it didn't happen, uh, this, this moving out of the whole earth didn't happen because man was obedient. It happened because God is sovereign. Man's obedience is a really good thing. It's a really important thing. But ultimately, God rules and God has his way. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. We may be obedient, we may be disobedient, but God's sovereignty is such that he can still achieve his purposes in and through and often in spite of our disobedience. And this is what plays out. Um, in Genesis 10 and 11. You know, the, the, the idea of God's sovereignty, I often struggle to learn this. and I, I understand the principle, I understand it in my head, but to live it, to, to actually live each day remembering that God is sovereign and he is in control. It's in my head, learning it in my heart. But when I look in my rear view mirror, I see in my life, that even in those moments where I thought maybe I was in control or I thought maybe everything was out of control, I still look back and I can testify that it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. And as I learn that, I can trust him for tomorrow. So in chapter 11, we read from verse 1, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shina and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and, and, and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth and, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You know, verse 2 seems such a simple statement. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. It's such a natural thing to do. It's such a human thing to do. To find a good place and settle down. But as we look at the story in the context of the overall narrative, the command of God to go and fill the earth, this statement that they would settle down, it, it communicates such a defiant rejection of God and his purposes. This area is modern-day Iraq, and 
this is the area that, according to Genesis 10, uh, will one day uh, be occupied by the descendants of Ham. But also, as we unpack our story, um, we find it's also the location of the city of Ur, which is the birthplace of Abraham, and, and we come to Abraham in a few weeks. But for now, humanity has found this comfortable place, not just to rest, but to stop. No more going. Just let's stay here. Let's build a tower. Let's build a monument. Let's build something that testifies to our own greatness. And it'll stop us from being scattered. But if we think back again, if we read again the story so far, if we go back to Genesis 1, we were created in the image of God. We are image bearers. And then we were told to go and fill the earth and subdue it. We would rule over the earth under God's rulership. We would be image bearers. We would, as we went and filled the earth, we were to carry his image to reflect his glory throughout the whole earth. We were to go and to multiply and to keep going and to keep multiplying. However, the reality then and now is that we would rather be the focus. We would rather the focus be on us, on our comfort and our plans. I say we because we do exactly that, both collectively and individually. We, we make progress as God has commanded, and then we get to a comfortable place, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, where it's like, actually, this is really good. And then the focus shifts from him to us, and we seek to settle for comfort and for safety and security. And so we're told that God looks at their efforts and he makes an interesting statement, a, a powerful statement. The Lord says in verse uh, 6 and 7 of Genesis 11, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And then God says, Let us, it's Father, Son and Holy Spirit, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. I've heard people comment on, they struggle with this passage because they can't believe that God would do something as destructive as to separate people into nations by confusing their language. And, and the, the comment becomes all about the wars that have been fought down through the millennia because of this division between people of different languages and nations, dividing people as if somehow language is the problem. And they point out all the wars and the deaths that have occurred as nations have risen up against nation. But the problem is not language. The problem is the human heart. That's why the most dangerous place is not at some border uh, between two warring nations. A quick Google search tells us that an average year will see 140 million children born. Around the world, 140 million children are born each year. And that's staggering. But another quick Google search will also say that on top of that 140 million children who are born, another 73 million are killed in the womb. Induced abortions. 143 million children born and 73 million on top of that who will never see birth. I don't want to say too much more on that, but we are so committed to our own comfort 
and convenience. But don't blame the language barriers. It's the human heart. And so God confuses their languages so that they cannot easily work together. And once more, the descendants of Noah begin to spread out on their journey to fill the earth as God has purposed and as God has commanded. And I believe we see the same things happen with denominations and churches. Whenever the church has become complacent, whenever we have found ourselves in a good place, in a safe place, a comfortable place, how easily we have settled down, how we have opted to settle, to, to build and to make a name for ourselves. The once great churches of the New Testament are at best just a shadow of their former selves, and it happened so quickly. Have a look at the chapel chat this week, where I refer to the seven churches in Revelation. How two of the churches are commended, but five of the churches that that uh, Jesus commands John to write a letter to, uh, five of the seven churches are, are challenged um, over their loss of their first love and their and their failure to complete the tasks, that, the, the works that have been given them to do, and so on. This is only. 30 years after the death of the Apostle Paul and, and 60 years after the death of Jesus and already the church is losing its focus. It's finding a place where it's comfortable. We see the same right through the once great denominations of church history. So many are increasingly empty shells and not just their buildings. The denominations, not necessarily all of those who are part of those denominations, but the denominations as a whole. But when people fix, when people keep their eyes on Jesus, when they remember his command to go, when they place obedience above comfort, when they seek to see God's kingdom come, his will done on earth as it is in heaven, when they seek to see God's name as exalted, his kingdom and his rule extended, things are different. Starting next Sunday, we have a four-week series on the nature and purpose of the church. A key verse for this series is Ephesians 3, chapter, oh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where, where it says that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to God's eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like, that's really, really impressive. God's purpose for the church was to reveal his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. But when I look at so many of the denominations and independent churches that have emerged in the 20th century, I can't help feeling just a little underwhelmed. I'm not sure that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms would stand back and go, wow. See, I'm not sure that the words of Revelation 3, 14 to 20 have ever been more appropriate than the, for the church today. This is runs written to the church in Laodicea. To the angel in the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold. I wish you were one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I have acquired, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And he goes on, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with this person and they with me. This is a, this is a church. 60 years after the death of Jesus, 30 years after the death of the Apostle Paul, and they are lukewarm. It is all about them. We are rich. We have everything that we need. And they do not see their emptiness. What is their emptiness? Their emptiness is that their saviour, who is meant to be their focus, is standing outside the church. He's standing at the door saying, can I come in? Can I come in and have fellowship with you? There is this huge problem in the church, but there's also an invitation to change. Repeatedly, God has called people out from the church, sometimes to a new church, sometimes to a new denomination. Sometimes the separation is less physical, but there is a, a fresh rising up within a church or within that church. A fresh move of God, a fresh stirring. See, the true church is not an institution, however large or small. As we will explore over the next few weeks, the true church is the body of Christ. And while I've been underwhelmed by much of what I see when I look at the, 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 the institutional church, I also have to admit that when I read the stories of the work and the worship of the body of Christ through the last 2,000 years and around the world today, when I see those men and women of God who have chosen to walk in obedience to his command, without a doubt the manifold wisdom of God has been and is being made known. But what about here in Te Arati? See, my plea, my prayer is this. I believe God is doing something significant. But whatever the future holds for this congregation, my prayer is that we may never, we will never settle, that we will never make this about us. Being planted somewhere is okay. Having buildings can be a good thing. But when we make it about the place, when we make it about the buildings, when we make it about us, our name, our reputation, then God will either step out and abandon us, or he will step in and scatter us. He's done it time and again. One way or another, his plans and purposes will prevail. He will find the men and women who will walk in humble obedience to his word and he will work in them and through them to fulfill his purposes. Our only choice is are we going to keep going where he leads or are we willing to let him lead, sorry, to let him move on without us. But here's the good news. In verse 6 of chapter 11 where God said if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. If that was true in the negative of them seeking to make a name for themselves, how much more true it is if we stand together, united in heart and mind, committed to doing what we hear. See, those churches in the book of Revelation, 
each and every churches. It was he who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we listen to what the Spirit is saying and we keep focused on the Holy Spirit and we keep doing what the Spirit says. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. One heart, one mind. For there we're told the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. In Ephesians 4, we're told in verse 15 and 16, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We will explore in the coming weeks this whole thing that we are equipped by the Holy Spirit to do good works. We are equipped by the Holy Spirit and when we each do our work together and when we speak to one another the truth in love, we grow together to become all that he has intended, the church, the body of Christ. And so if we, as one people speaking the same language, being of one heart and mind, have begun to do this, then nothing that we plan to do will be impossible for us if we keep our eyes on him. The opportunities are there, but so too are the dangers to stop and to settle and to make a name for ourselves. My prayer is that we keep our eyes on Jesus and that we keep listening for and following the leading of his Holy Spirit. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz dot org dot nz